I'm Daniel Gowerluck, and this is On Earth. On Earth is brought to you by the Pacific Museum of Earth. In this podcast, we aim to show what it's like to be an Earth, ocean, or atmospheric scientist. There's a lot of diversity under that umbrella, and not all of our scientists wear lab coats. Today on Earth, we're talking to Tyler Harrington. Tyler, welcome to On Earth. Now, you are a climatologist, or sorry, a climate scientist. Um, what is that? What does a climate scientist mean to you? Uh, so, you know, I think climate science, uh, much like, you know, geoscience as a whole, is, you know, quite a broad field. Uh, you recently had a climate scientist on here, my understanding, that, you know, did work with ice cores in Greenland and the Antarctic. I'm a very different type of climate scientist in that I actually don't spend much time in the field. Um, the type of climate, uh, climate science I focus on is actually using computer models to ask questions about the past, present, and you know, uh, future climate. Uh, more specifically, I consider myself a land modeler. Uh, so basically, I'm someone that focuses on modeling how changes in the land surface, so things like snow cover, vegetation, and soils, and the carbon that cycles through uh, the landscape uh, affect the climate system through feedbacks. That's really cool. Um, that's something that we don't often think about uh, affecting the climate, but... Very much so. Yeah, actually, you know, the, uh, the land surface can actually have major influences, especially in the high latitudes where you've got things like snow cover. And you think, if you think about the fact that snow is white and, you know, if you're walking on the, you know, up in the mountains on a sunny winter day, you can get snow blindness. That's because the snow is reflecting a lot of that sunlight back to space or into your eyes, unfortunately, in the case of snow blindness. So if you have a large area covered with snow and ice, um, it can play a huge role in you know, controlling the uh, surface temperature uh, at the Earth. And if you take that snow away, as we're doing uh, by melting uh, snow in the high latitudes, you're now exposing a much darker land surface that's absorbing energy, warming up, you know, creating more snow melt, and it's like a positive feedback on climate change, if you will. That's a great way of explaining it. <laughs> so these climate models that I use are you know, really complex. They include a whole bunch of different components. You know, they've got uh, components that basically, they're essentially mathematical models and you've got all these different mathematical equations calculating things like how does uh, the air temperature change in response to change in greenhouse gases or changes in the amount of sunlight reaching Earth's surface. But that air temperature then feeds into all sorts of things, like that air temperature is going to influence the type of precipitation that's fallen. And, you know, the model has to calculate, you know, is the precipitation that's falling, A, is it falling, and B, is it rain or snow, and how much is that collecting on the ground, how much of that's evaporating. So you've got all these really complex interactions between all these different components between the land surface, the ocean, and the atmosphere. And you've got to basically run this over and over and over again, 
across many different time steps from point A to point B. So let's say you're wanting to calculate it from 1950 to 2000. You've got to run all these equations at every grid point on the model, um, you know, constantly over and over again and refresh that basically mathematics so they can feed into the next time step of the model. So you can't run it on your personal computer. So we run these on you know, really complex supercomputers. So the big um, labs that you hear about, you know, in, uh, you know, these are the ones that, you know, you have maybe at the University of Waterloo or at really fancy computer centers across Canada. And, you know, a whole bunch of different researchers basically timeshare these supercomputers. And what you do is you basically say, okay, I need this many cores or this many basically nodes of the device to run my project. And I'm going to basically use this many nodes to, for this many hours in order to calculate my uh, results. Whenever I hear um, climatologists talk or even atmospheric scientists talk about their work, I'm always, I always think of watchmakers. It's like you're trying to uncover this super complex watch and especially with climatology, the watch and the gears are changing shape and size uh, as you're trying to study it and create this picture of what's going on. So it's, um, it's really impressive and it also makes my, my mind hurt. <laughs> <laughs> it is a very complex subject area. And, you know, much like a lot of the geoscience uh, field as a whole, it's, you know, quite interdisciplinary because you're taking aspects of physics, aspects of chemistry, and even aspects of ecology. And all of these are feeding into the climate model and determining the climate system. Now, uh, what level are you at in your career? Are you a student or a teacher? Uh, so I've kind of jumped around a little bit. Currently, I'm a PhD student, uh, you know, working at the University of Waterloo. Uh, but, you know, many times in the past, I've also acted as kind of a teacher. Uh, so after completing my master's degree at Simon Fraser, I actually worked at uh, Douglas College uh, for a couple of years in the uh, uh, geography lab there as a lab technician, kind of as a teaching assistant. But I've also had the opportunity on a couple of occasions to uh, teach as a sessional instructor or a sessional lecturer. Uh, at a couple of colleges around uh, Metro Vancouver. Uh, but currently I'm a PhD student, so I've kind of jumped around a little bit. <laughs> Great. It's always nice that you can uh, take what you've learned and then pass it on to other people. Definitely. Now you mentioned you have jumped around a bit. Uh, what is your professional background? What, like, do you have a degree in climate science or is that a degree at the undergrad level? <laughs> uh, so climate science is, as a degree, can mean a whole bunch of different things. Um, there are not many places that offer a true climate science degree because climate science is often a subset of physics or a subset of geography, or in some cases, earth science. Uh, so actually the way that I've had a little bit of a uh, circuitous career in that I started in geology in my undergrad did a couple of years of uh, geology at University of Victoria. Um, and after that, I realized that I wasn't quite interested in, you know, hard rock geology. That really wasn't my interest. So I thought about 
um, you know, what it is that I really am passionate about. And that's always been weather and atmosphere. And so I actually made a jump to physical geography. And from there, I, you know, studied a fair bit about uh, the climate system and, you know, various aspects of uh, the Earth's uh, physical components. So I got a bachelor's in physical geography from Simon Fraser and then uh, did a follow-up to that with a master's at uh, Simon Fraser University uh, with a focus on climate carbon cycle uh, relationships. So basically using climate models to study how uh, carbon um, moves through the various different components of the earth. So how does it move through the soil, the trees, the plants, the ocean, and the atmosphere? And what feedbacks does this have on climate change? So that was the focus of my master's. But I've always had a real fascination for snow cover. And so uh, after working a couple of years at uh, Douglas College as a lab tech, I uh, decided to go back to do my PhD and I moved to the University of Waterloo here. Uh, and, you know, I've had a um, chance to kind of focus on Arctic climate science, uh, you know, with various interests in snow cover and more recently uh, permafrost soils. That's really cool. Um, and a very Canadian take on climate science, focusing on the snow cover. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very much so. Wonderful. And uh, what... What drew you to climate science? Why did you choose that? So, you know, when I thought about things after, you know, realizing geology wasn't quite for me, I thought back and, you know, I remembered that I always had a fascination with weather. You know, all the way back as a young kid, I used to drive my parents absolutely nuts asking them about uh, questions about the weather over and over again every single day. And so, you know, if you had asked me what my dream job was when I was five or six, I probably would have said a meteorologist. And so I'm like, you know, is there something here I can do with geography that kind of brings me in that direction? And so I started taking some courses on weather and climate and then, you know, realized that, you know, there's a real need to study, you know, Earth's climate and uh, how it's responding to the changes that we're making in greenhouse gases and to changes in the, the land surface. And, you know, what actually is going to happen in the next 50 years? So, you know, I think, you know, that realization that, hey, I've got a passion in weather, but there's something I can really do that can make a difference, you know, maybe going forward, looking at, you know, how we're changing Earth's climate. And I think that's where I came to this conclusion that, you know, climate science is probably my interest. Looking back, it sounds like you were almost predestined to become what you are today. You had a lifelong affinity for weather and you had your brief dalliance with geography and geology, um, which impacts your, uh, your science or uh, gives a special slant to how you study your, your weather. Have you ever made any discoveries that you'd like to share? I'm uh, still fairly early on with the uh, papers that I'm writing for my PhD, but we've actually been getting a fair bit of uh, interest uh, lately. Um, some of the research that I've been doing is focused on how well do uh, models capture soil temperature and permafrost regions. And uh, a lot of the models 
or what are called reanalyses. Uh, so a reanalysis is essentially um, like a weather model uh, that's then attached to some sort of land model. And not only that, but what it does is it actually incorporates some satellite data that we might have about surface temperature or wind speed. And what it does is says, okay, we know this, uh, this particular area of Earth's surface has this uh, temperature that we've estimated from the satellite. It's got this wind speed. And then it asks the land model, given these constraints, what are the potential outcomes for things like soil temperature and all the other variables that we don't actually have information for? So you basically use these reanalysis products to constrain a land model that then can calculate things like soil temperature. But the problem is, is that these land models aren't necessarily designed for permafrost regions where, you know, you've got ice and snow cover and the way that they handle uh, soil temperature in regions where you have constant freeze and thaw cycles, or in many cases at further at depth, um, permanently frozen soil, they're not designed to actually model that type of uh, landscape. So the question is, how well do these products actually capture the soil temperature that we're seeing? Because we don't actually have a big enough, uh, you know, enough of these, you know, sites across the Arctic to really have a great measure of how the soil temperature is changing across the Arctic as a whole. Uh, so one, uh, our study is actually one of the first to do a really comprehensive uh, dive into all these different reanalyses and actually look at how well are these products performing. Listening to you talk, it's almost like you're looking at another planet, uh, but it totally makes sense that because Canada is so sp uh, sparsely populated and s certain areas are so uh, difficult to get to that you basically have to treat it like you're studying Mars. Um, you have to study it from space. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah. we only have these very limited samples across space and time that we've actually had somebody in the field taking measurements. But what we want to know is how is the entire Arctic changing as a whole? Because that's going to determine you know, how fast the climate's changing. And when you say the entire Arctic, do you mean Canadian Arctic or just the global Arctic? Uh, so... There's kind of two prongs to this study. We're going to be, you know, there's obviously an interest in, you know, how is the Canadian Arctic changing? But I'm also interested in the, quote, Pan-Arctic. So the Canadian and the Eurasian Arctic together, kind of the whole Arctic. How is that changing? What are the differences that are occurring between the Canadian Arctic and the Eurasian Arctic? And, you know, how can we potentially improve these models to hopefully in the future, better capture soil temperatures. And is there a Canadian flavor of climate change that you've noticed so far? Still early on. Uh, one of the things we found is that a lot of these products, for some reason, appear to be too cold. And if we want to actually capture, um, accurately capture the uh, trends in permafrost, we actually need to have an accurate um, change in temperature over, you know, a 30 year period, because, you know, the presence of permafrost is 
you know, determined by that zero degree threshold. So if you're three or four degrees too cold on this side, you might be overestimating the permafrost area. But if you're one or two degrees too warm, you're going to vastly underestimate the amount of permafrost we currently have. So trying to get that balance is kind of the focus. Something I hadn't thought about. Now, you mentioned most of your work is done in the lab, uh, but you do do some field work, right? I personally don't do uh, field work. Uh, what I've done is I've actually gathered uh, data sets that other researchers, uh, so what I use for validating are my ground truth data. I take a bunch of different data sets from all these different sites that have been collected all across time and all across the Arctic at different points in time. And then I say, okay, here's what we know, the little bits and pieces we know across space and time about the Arctic soil temperatures. And then I say, okay, on this given day, at this given point in space, what is the model saying about the temperature? And then I, you know, ask, is it too warm? Is it too cold? And I'm doing this for all eight models at the same time. Wow. <laughs> Um, one of the things that I've really loved about this interview series has just been hearing about um, when things go wrong with your work. <laughs> Usually it's in the field, but I mean, your field is a lab. So I know that things go wrong in the lab all the time. Um, things go wrong in the museum all the time. And they make me laugh after I'm done with them. But uh, do you have any of those crazy stories that you'd care to share today? Certainly. So, I mean, I can talk a little bit about both. Um so I've actually, in the past, spent time in the field uh, during some co-op education work terms in my undergrad. Uh, so after the second year of geology, I uh, took a co-op position uh, with a junior mining firm uh, that was looking for lead and zinc in the Selwyn Mountains of the Yukon. And so... Um, you know, this is, uh, you know, kind of a funny story. Um, we're uh, sitting in camp and, you know, they're, we're starting to realize, you know, we're running low on fuel and we've got these daily flights coming into camp um, that are going to need to be refueled as they come into these, you know, really isolated parts of the Yukon Mountains. And there's, you know, there's no roads. There's, it's fly in, fly out only. And so we've got to be able to refuel these uh, planes and helicopters that are servicing us. And so what do we do? We get snow shovels and we jump in a helicopter to fly to the top of the mountains and spend the next couple hours digging out a spare soil, I guess, spare fuel store um, using snow shovels. You know, we don't walk out uh, the door and, you know, shovel a, few centimeters of snow off. We're digging, you know, a couple meters of snow away from this fuel store in the Yukon Mountains. I don't think Vancouverites know what that's like. <laughs> no. And, you know, it's June, so the snow is melting. So it's really wet and heavy. That's the worst kind of snow. So I think that was a funny story from, you know, kind of the, the field. But in terms of my day-to-day -day work, I work with really massive data sets. You know, these, these models produce uh, gigabytes, and in some cases, terabytes of data. Uh, so, you know, in many cases, too much to store in my 
personal computer, so I have to store it on servers. And it's way too difficult to actually go into every single one of the 1,500 um, data sets that I have that I'm using as my ground truth to actually look at the data and make sure that everything's being calculated correctly. So I have to build uh, essentially um, computer scripts to do this for me, to basically loop through each one of these files, calculate, for example, a monthly average, extract whatever uh, time period has actually got um, correct data, throw out the time periods don't have data, and then say, okay, from the models, let's find the days that match up with the ground data that we have and put all together, calculate the statistics and come up with some solution. But it is really time consuming to do that and it's really easy to make mistakes. So there's often been times where I've spent days you know, just debugging these scripts because, you know, you fix one thing and then another thing starts happening. And then, you know, you might think, oh, yeah, I've solved it. And then you go back and look at the data and it's completely wrong. So, you know, it can be really <laughs> frustrating and time consuming solving all the potential glitches in the scripts. And then I'm sure you have weeks where everything goes perfectly and you just feel excellent. <laughs> yeah, you get into this rhythm and uh, you get kind of in these... Uh, you build momentum, things are going well, and then you hit the next snag, and then you're spending a couple of weeks trying to solve that one. So Days where you have the anti-Midas touch. <laughs> exactly. Uh, that leads me to my next set of questions. Um, what's your favorite or the best part of your work? And conversely, what's the worst or the most challenging part? Certainly. So I would say, you know, the, the fact that I can work with, you know, these data sets from all these different models and, you know, really be able to explain how the land surface, how, you know, how the land surface is changing. You know, I find that really fascinating because in the Arctic, the land surface plays a huge role in determining the climate of the area. And to be able to say, okay, you know, I've got this little bit of data here, this little bit of data here, and that little bit of data there, but let's actually synthesize it together and come up with a story that actually tells the entire picture or as entire of a picture as you can. I find that really fascinating to be able to put these you know, little bits and pieces of the puzzle together and actually come up with a concrete story that we can you know, say, hey, you know, the landscape is changing in this manner and what impact is that gonna have on Earth's climate? I think that's really fascinating to me. You're a puzzle solver. <laughs> Exactly, it is. It's basically, you know, figuring out what needs to be solved and then putting the pieces of the puzzles together. What's the worst part? Uh, I kind of alluded it to, uh, to it before, but, you know, you're working with such massive amounts of data that you have to build these automated scripts. And, you know, I can spend hours and hours trying to debug these things. And sometimes it'll take, you know, a few days to figure out what actually went wrong with the script. You know, I, I tend to be best at working in the morning, so I'd rather get up at 7.30 in the morning and start debugging it. Because by about 1 or 2 o'clock, if I haven't solved it, there's no point in me continuing. So my brain is just not at that point 
in the mindset to be able to solve it. So basically I'll have to kind of shelve it for the rest of the day and come back to it to the next morning. And often I'll be able to solve it the next morning, but that period of time, you know, from two o'clock to the next morning, it's kind of, you know, ruminating in my head and it's driving me nuts. Sometimes it's nice to be able to put your head down and just plow through a problem like that. And other times, like you said, you hit a wall and you start going cross-eyed if you have to look at another line of code. Yeah, certainly. Now, why do you do this? Why is this uh, research important? Um, why does it? Why do we need to know how fast the ground temperature is heating up in these remote communities? Certainly. So if you uh, if you look at uh, soil across the globe, there's lots and lots of organic matter in that soil. Uh, so things like, you know, leaves and broken down grass, um, you know, all sorts of things kind of collect in soil. Soil is a massive store of carbon. And, you know, when it's uh, exposed to uh, the type of temperatures we see at the mid-latitudes or in the tropics, it's cy- being cycled through by the biology, you know, on a much quicker uh, basis. And it's, you know, releasing uh you know, CO2 to the atmosphere, but all of this is kind of normal. But in the Arctic, that soil is frozen and the biology or the microbes are not able to process it. And that's why we are able to find these absolutely almost perfectly preserved specimens of Ice Age mammals 20,000 years later. But what happens when you warm that soil up to the melting point, and it starts to reactivate those soil microbes. That starts to allow the microbes to break down the organic matter that's been sitting there for 20,000 years. And what happens to that organic matter? Well, some of it's going to be converted into methane, some of it into CO2, and these are greenhouse gases that are driving the current climate change we're seeing. So this, you know, we think that Um, there's about twice the current amount of uh, carbon that's currently in the atmosphere that's sitting kind of preserved in these permafrost soils. So you can think that what if we start melting all this permafrost and allowing these microbes to actually start breaking down all that organic matter, how much of that's going to be turning into CO2, into methane, and feeding back into the climate, you know? Because that's a positive feedback right there. You're uh, releasing CO2 into the atmosphere, contributing to more warming, contributing to more melting of the permafrost, and you can see a potential feedback that's setting up there. So it's really important to understand how quickly are the soil temperatures changing in these environments so that we can come up with an estimate to quantify how quickly are these Um, microbes processing the soil, how much of it's going to be converted into CO2, and how dangerous is it going to be basically in the future uh, to see a potential feedback loop happening. We really often treat the Arctic as out of sight, out of mind. But um, like you said, just because we turn a blind eye to it doesn't mean it's not going to change our world. Exactly. That's kind of terrifying. (laughs) Any words of optimism? You know, I think there are people that are, you know, truly 
interested in making a difference. And, you know, if we actually put our minds to it and, you know, really make an effort, you know, the effort that we make is going to reduce the impact down the road. So, you know, we've already seen a degree and a half of warming. Um, sure, we're going to see impacts because of that one and a half degrees and because of the fact that the ocean responds in a really slow time scale, we're probably going to see a little bit more warming occurring. But the effort that we put in now to try to reduce emissions is going to mean a lot less headaches down the road than if we were to just let everything, you know, continue to happen business as usual. So that uh, you know, it's really important to put in that effort now and. Uh, you know, make those, you know, changes to what we need to do to reduce greenhouse gases. And if we can do that, we're really going to be able to, I think, more easily adapt to the changes that we're going to see in the future than if we just let everything run as it's currently running. We've proven that we're in the, the uh, driver's seat of this climate change, so it's our choice to hit the brakes. <laughs> You mentioned that you are among uh, many different climate scientists. It's a very broad field with a lot of uh, people in different disciplines. Um, do you feel like it's a very welcoming field or is it a little more insular where uh, they look after their own? I think, you know, like a lot of disciplines in geoscience, you know, it has suffered from somewhat of a lack of diversity in the past. Um, but I think there are some promising signs that it's changing. For example, uh, I just read this year that the American Geophysical Union's cryospheric section uh, decided not actually to recommend any of its fellows this year because of concerns around the lack of diversity of their nominees. So I think we're actually starting to see a realization that, hey, you know, that we need to embrace diversity in the field. And I think, you know, anecdotally, I can say that in the last, uh, you know, five to seven years that I've been in grad school, I've definitely seen a much uh, larger proportion of, a, you know, uh, students from all sorts of diverse backgrounds uh, coming into climate science. And, you know, it's shifting from a, you know, predominantly uh, male-dominated um, field to a more diverse field now. Wonderful. That's always good to know because climate change is going to affect all of us. Absolutely. And, you know, having that, those diverse uh, points of view from, you know, all parts of the globe is going to help us solve that puzzle more quickly. Um, one thing which has tied us all together this past year has been COVID. Um, so I'm curious, uh, being uh, that most of your work is in a lab, has it impacted you too much or... Uh, so, fortunately, as someone who focuses in, on the modeling side of climate change, I've been rather lucky that um, all I really need is an access to a stable internet connection uh, that I then can log into the server and do most of my work. So, actually, most of the data that I use is not stored on my home computer. It's stored on our university server. So, as long as I have a internet connection that I can log into the university server. Uh, so what I do is I use Linux to log in and then I use Linux commands to make all these scripts. And so as long as I have access to an internet connection, I'm relatively able to work from home for the most part. 
uh, I know quite a few of my colleagues in uh, uh, geography uh, who work in the field were much more strongly impacted by COVID because they had to basically make absolutely uh, massive changes to their uh, thesis work as a result of, you know, not being able to do uh, field work for the past year. But for me, luckily, you know, there's definite, you know, impacts that, you know, you're, you're not able to separate your home and work life as easily. You know, I'm working in my bedroom here all the time and that's not ideal. But I would say that I've definitely been luckier than those who have had to, you know, make changes to their uh, plans in the field, for sure. Mm -hmm. And it's, you mean you say just an internet connection, but uh, if COVID's shown us one thing, it's who lives in neighborhoods with good internet and who doesn't. And it seems to have nothing to do with socioeconomics. Like you'll have university deans with terrible internet just because that's the neighborhood you'll have CEOs cutting out on Zoom calls, uh, whereas, you know, students uh, may be fine. So it's just a crapshoot. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely been times where, you know, the internet has cut out. And I tend to find that, you know, the home internet is not quite as reliable <laughs> as what we have at the university. So there's definitely been times where the internet has posed a problem. But I would say, that it's been a relatively small inconvenience compared to what some of the uh, colleagues have had to deal with uh, in the department. Now, you've painted a wonderful picture of climate science, and um, especially for any students who are listening who maybe aren't thrilled about field work. I know I'm not too into it. Um, what background or courses or experiences would you recommend uh, for anyone planning to follow in your footsteps? So one thing about the modeling side of climate change is that it is heavily reliant on these complex mathematical models. So, you know, these models are basically um, consist, you basically consist of uh, the uh, fundamental equations of, you know, the first, second and third laws of thermodynamics. Um, all sorts of different mathematical relationships and statistical relationships between all these different components of the earth. So you really want to have a strong background in physics and mathematics, certainly. Chemistry is important there as well, uh, depending on what aspect of the globe or you know what aspect of climate science you want to focus on. But because it's a highly interdisciplinary field, and as I said, that you know the land surface is you know heavily um, influenced by the ecology, you really want to have a strong background in all three core sciences, I would say. You know, don't skimp on biology. Uh, I would say you want to definitely take, you know, a few landscape ecology courses as well. I would say that, you know, having the, uh, I did a minor in my undergrad in ecology and, you know, having that minor in ecology has actually helped, um, I think to a degree uh, helped in my understanding of the carbon cycle, for example, during my master's, but also in understanding how the vegetation shifts are going to respond to climate change. So I think, you know, it's, it's really important to see climate science as an interdisciplinary field and be able to have an understanding of all the major scientific disciplines if you can. Obviously, if you're focusing on modeling, physics, mathematics, and chemistry are going to be really important. 
but don't count out things like ecology or geography because all of these things contribute to the climate system. It sounds like you need to get comfortable with being uncomfortable uh, and not being an expert in what you're uh, learning about. Exactly. And, you know, I think the fact that I kind of had a, I kind of jumped from geology to physical geography has actually improved my uh, understanding of the climate system because there's so many different aspects of it. And, you know, being exposed to the geology, being exposed to geography, you know, obviously through that, I took some physics and mathematics. I would say that one area that I wish I had a little stronger understanding of is kind of your second and third year differential equations and more complex mathematics, because that's all the climate models are. It's just a bunch of these differential equations that you need to solve. Fortunately, the computer does it for you, but you need to have an appreciation for how these equations are constructed. And, you know, if you need to make changes to the models, you need to have an appreciation of, you know, how to solve these equations yourself, essentially. Right. Yeah, you need to understand what the computer's doing. Otherwise, you can't trust it. Uh, what was the most important course that you took when you were in school? Uh, it's a difficult question to answer because of the fact that it's such a highly interdisciplinary field. I would say that, you know, a lot of the core climate science focused courses came through physical geography, uh, in my degree at least. So those were important, you know, getting that core understanding of how the climate system works was important. But if I didn't have that, you know, understanding of geology or that understanding of physics or chemistry, you know, I wouldn't have as good of a understanding of the climate system that I do currently. So it's a hard question to answer because it relies on so many different components of science. There's not one discipline that you can come into climate science from. Actually, I know quite a few engineers uh, that come into climate science and there are many, you know, former engineers that become climate scientists. Obviously, there are, uh, my uh, master's supervisor came from a physics background. Uh, my current PhD supervisor uh, had somewhat of a, definitely has a physics background, but also a geography background. So, you know, all of these things are contributing to our knowledge. Wonderful. Yeah, I guess you can't narrow it down to just one course. Um, maybe you'll have to make that course, Intro to Climate Science. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, they often have Intro to Climate Science in the geography uh, departments, but they draw on information from all different disciplines. Now, you've given some very inspirational stories today, um, but do you feel like anyone's inspired you or been a role model for you as you've been going through your studies? For sure. I think, you know, there's been three uh, major uh, people that I can, uh, you know, think of that have had, you know, a definite impact on my studies. Uh, the first one was a senior lecturer at uh, Simon Fraser University in geography. He unfortunately passed away during my master's degree. But if it wasn't for him, I probably would never be sitting here today talking to you about it. Because in my undergrad, I had no desire to go into research. And I didn't have the confidence that I could get into a PhD. But it was because of him that he said, no, look, you've, you've got a real passion for this subject. 
give it a shot. You know, if it wasn't for him, I probably would not have entered grad school. So, you know, that was, you know, Owen Hertzman uh, was a big reason why I entered grad school in the first place. You know, I think my master's supervisor um, played an important role in, uh, you know, helping me become more comfortable uh, with uh, working with mathematical models. As I said, you know, I've, you know, I only have kind of first year calculus and, you know, second year geophysics. So I've, I've always had this fear that I'm somewhat, um, don't have enough of a mathematical background to be doing what I do, but it was kind of my master supervisor that showed me, Hey, you know, if you're passionate about a subject, you can learn what you need to learn. You know, that's what grad school is a lot, you know, a lot of grad school is about is learning on the fly what you need to know in order to answer the questions that you need to answer. And, uh, you know, my current PhD supervisor has been instrumental in helping me uh, become more comfortable with executing uh, independent research. You know, sometimes it drives me crazy that he won't, you know, give me more direction than he does, but I know why he's doing it because the PhD is really about learning how to execute an independent research project by yourself, because going forward, it's going to be you driving the project, not your supervisor. What you mentioned about not being confident with your early calculus skills. Um, the more I, I uh, experience the university, the more I realize how imposter syndrome is just everywhere. And everyone, even the people who you think are the most secure and confident, uh, they've usually got it the most. <laughs> So, yeah, I definitely suffer from it a lot. I'm definitely um, one that deals with imposter syndrome every day. So, yeah, it's like when they say picture everyone in the room in their underwear. Uh, just when you look out over a big room of uh, professors, picture them all being insecure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, now I'm curious, you, you are just starting your career as a climate scientist, but uh, I want you to look to the long term. What would you like to be the legacy of your career uh, when you retire? That's a good question. I still haven't quite figured out what direction I want to go. I know I do have a passion for teaching through my experiences as a teaching assistant, as a sessional lecturer, and as a tutor more recently helping students with uh, statistics in our department, you know, I feel great satisfaction when I can, you know, take a really complex subject, break it down and into something that, you know, somebody's able to understand. You know, I find there's great satisfaction in doing that. That being said, I've been doing some, you know, recent work on this uh, reanalysis, uh, these reanalysis data sets in validating soil temperatures in the Canadian Arctic. And, you know, I can see there's some real promising research potentially coming out of that and some really neat applications. So I don't want to shut off the, the research route either. So, you know, I'm really not certain what direction I want to go yet. That's something else I hear with a lot of our profs is they love their research and they love to teach and they want to do both full time. <laughs> you can't, it's hard. Finally, uh, one thing that I've noticed uh, with every field 
is that every field of uh, and profession is changing at lightning speed. And the job that you go into at the beginning of your career can be completely unrecognizable by the time you retire. So uh, where do you see climate science going in the future? And what advice do you have for young people so that they can anticipate and prepare for those changes? You know, I think historically, there's been a huge focus on the physical science of climate change. And, you know, really trying to, you know, develop these mathematical models to uh, estimate how quickly the climate is responding to these changes. But we're actually starting to see many of these effects now, you know, in our daily lives all around the world. So, you know, I think there's really been a realization that there needs to be more of the adaptation and the social science aspects included in this climate change problem. You know, there's been a huge focus in the past on the physical climate. There's still lots to be you know, solved when it comes to physical climate science. The models aren't perfect. There's always going to be questions to be answered there, but there's really been a burgeoning field in the adaptation literature, for example. How do we adapt to the changes we're currently seeing? And how do we adapt to a future climate that's going to look very different? You know, I think all these, you know, sort of um, subsets of climate change are opening up that didn't necessarily exist uh, 10, 20 years ago. More of a social uh, science um, aspect to it. Exactly. So I think, you know, there's, there's really been a, that's why a lot of these environment faculties have been popping up everywhere and, you know, starting because this, this problem is not a one-pronged problem. It requires knowledge from all sorts of different aspects of science and, you know, even social science. And, you know, having that realization that, you know, we do need to integrate some of that social scientific knowledge to solve the problem, I think, is going to be important going forward. That's a really interesting response. I like that. Well, those are all the questions I have for you for today. Um, is there anything I missed or anything you want to say before I let you go? Um, I think that's mostly what I was going to say. You know, if, in terms of, uh, you know, there's one of the recent things we found in the most recent intergovernmental panel on climate change report is that the, uh, what's called Earth's climate sensitivity and that's essentially um, what is the temperature response uh, for each additional uh, amount of carbon we emit into the atmosphere. That value actually, the, the uncertainty of that value actually increased in the most recent um, report. And a, what, a, what they're finding is that uh, cloud cover played a really important role in actually increasing that uncertainty. So some of the biggest problems we have yet to solve are those related to cloud cover. And the reason for that is, is that clouds are quite small in many cases, you know, on the order of a few kilometers. And these climate models have a resolution that's 100 by 100 kilometers. So how do you represent a cloud that's three kilometers in size at a scale that's 100 by 100 kilometers? And how do you represent these really tiny micro-scale processes that contribute to cloud formation 
averaged over a hundred kilometer by a hundred kilometer area. And that's been a ongoing problem in climate science that I think nobody's really solved yet. So I think, you know, cloud cover is a huge thing going forward. That really highlights the, uh, the youngness of the field in that we're still finding out what's important um, and what we need to be looking at um, before we can even uh, fine tune our models, I guess. Definitely. But there's still lots to be learned about the Arctic as well. You know, the land models are not perfect. They're actually one of the youngest components of the climate models. So if you looked at climate models in the 1970s and 1980s, what they were was essentially a uh, atmosphere model connected to some sort of simple ocean model. And they had nothing else. It was just the atmosphere interacting with the ocean. There was no land surface in the climate model. But as we moved into the 2000s and got more, um, more advanced computing power, we started incorporating these land components into the climate models. But the land components of the climate models are often the most uncertain because how do you represent something like vegetation that varies on the scale of meters? at the scale of a climate model. You have to use it, you have to do it using some sort of empirical um, relationship or what's called parameterization, which is essentially an approximation to look at the effect of that vegetation at a large scale and what impact it has on the climate. So these land models are actually some of the most uncertain components along with cloud cover. So, you know, there's still a lot to be solved in, uh, kind of the land model inside of climate as well. And yet I'm sure the land models are the ones that are most important to the people who live there because they live on the land. And when the permafrost or the ground underneath your home is literally melting away, uh, that impacts you. Definitely. Yeah, for sure. Well, Tyler, thanks for sitting down with me today. Uh, that's been really um, interesting and inspiring um, and informative. Thanks for sharing your passion and your stories. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you today. Thanks for listening to On Earth. On Earth is hosted by me and produced by myself, Kirsten Hodge, our editor Mel Woods, and Ollie Beebe designed our logo. On Earth is made possible thanks to the generous support of the Canadian Geological Foundation. For more episodes like this one, please visit our website at pme.ubc.ca slash learn slash podcast, or listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week, here on Earth.